0: Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, you remember the Oh My God particle discovered in 1991, right?
1: Absolutely, Diego. That was the most powerful cosmic ray ever detected until now.
0: That's right. Scientists have now detected a cosmic ray with an energy of 240 ex-electron volts. That's a million times greater than the most powerful human-made particle accelerators. And
1: what's more intriguing is that these ultra-high energy cosmic rays are so rare. I mean, fewer than one of these particles arrive on each square kilometer of Earth each
0: century. Exactly, Charlotte. And the mystery deepens when we try to trace the origin of this particle, which was detected in Utah and has been named Amaterasu, after a Japanese sun goddess.
1: That's right, Diego. The team tried to pinpoint the source, expecting to find a stellar explosion, black hole, or galaxy, but all they found was a void-like region with few galaxies.
0: So, what could be the possible explanations for this, Charlotte?
1: Well, Diego, one theory is that our understanding of how magnetic fields influence the course of cosmic rays could be off. If that's the case, Amaterasu might have come from a slightly different direction than initially thought.
0: Or... As astroparticle physicist Jose Belito-Caceres suggests, it could be new physics. Ultra-high-energy cosmic rays might be produced by unknown physical processes that allow them to travel much vaster distances than previously thought.
1: That's fascinating, Diego. And the team isn't stopping here. They're upgrading the telescope array to be four times as sensitive. This will allow them to capture more of these rare ultra-high-energy cosmic rays and trace their origins more precisely.
0: So, we're on the brink of potentially uncovering new physics or refining our understanding of cosmic rays. Either way, it's a win for science. From the mysteries of the universe, let's shift our gaze back down to Earth, specifically to the world of artificial intelligence. It's a realm not devoid of its own dramas and debates, as recent events at a key player in the AI field have shown. Let's delve into the latest happenings at OpenAI and the wider implications for the rapidly evolving AI landscape. Charlotte, have you been following the recent drama at OpenAI?
1: Oh, you mean the firing, rehiring, and board reshuffling of Sam Altman? Absolutely. It's been a whirlwind of a week for OpenAI.
0: Indeed, and it has sparked a larger debate on how commercial competition is shaping AI development. The race to stay ahead has led to some toxic competition, according to Sarah Myers West from the AI Now Institute.
1: Absolutely. And it's not just about the race to the top, but also the ethical and safety concerns associated with rapid AI deployment. Altman's ousting and subsequent reinstatement were triggered by a potential conflict at OpenAI between those focused on commercial growth and those worried about the impact of such rapid development.
0: Right, because OpenAI's mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. So it seems like there's a bit of a clash between the company's original nonprofit ethos and the capped profit model it shifted to in 2019.
1: That's a good point, Diego. It's a fascinating dynamic, isn't it? OpenAI was founded as a nonprofit, and now it's potentially transitioning into a more traditional profit-driven tech company.
0: Exactly, and it's not just about OpenAI. The AI landscape is heating up with Google, Amazon, and other startups all competing in the conversational AI space
1: and this competition could be detrimental for society. West worries that products are being released before we fully understand their behavior, uses, and potential misuses.
0: Right, and there's also a concern about the speed of AI development. Jeffrey Hinton, a pioneer of deep learning, is worried that we're removing the brakes in our haste to make AI go as fast as possible.
1: That's a chilling analogy. And it's not just about the potential misuse of AI by bad actors, but also the risk of an AI system itself becoming a bad actor.
0: Hinton's concerns may sound like science fiction, but they're very real. The existential threat of an uncontrollable, destructive AI is something we need to consider seriously.
1: Absolutely. And while we're worrying about these far-off threats, we also need to address the immediate dangers of AI, like misinformation, scams, and the reinforcement of historical biases.
0: Right, and as West emphasizes, we need to ensure existing laws are applied to tech companies developing AI. The events at OpenAI highlight how a few companies with the resources to feed AI wield a lot of power. It's time for more scrutiny from antitrust regulators.
1: From the complex world of artificial intelligence, we now venture into another equally intriguing domain of scientific advancements. We're about to delve into the microscopic universe where the codes of life are being rewritten. So, buckle up as we journey into the fascinating realm of gene editing and the revolutionary tool that is CRISPR-Cas9. Today, we're delving into the realm of gene editing, Diego.
0: Ah, the fascinating world of CRISPR-Cas9, best known for its role in the lab as a DNA editing tool. But did you know, Charlotte, Its natural function is actually as an immune system, helping microorganisms fend off viruses. I
1: did, Diego. But what's truly intriguing is the recent discovery of new, rare types of CRISPR systems. This is thanks to an algorithm that sifted through millions of
0: genomes. That's correct, Charlotte. Feng Zhang, a biochemist at MIT, and his colleagues developed this algorithm, which they named Fel-Esch-Clust. The algorithm analyzes genetic sequences in public databases, looking for
1: similarities between genetic sequences, right? And then it groups them into clusters, which it then uses to find CRISPR-associated genes.
0: Exactly. And this has led to the discovery of around 130,000 genes associated with CRISPR, 188 of which had never been seen before.
1: And among these, they found the code for an entirely unknown CRISPR system that targets RNA, which they've named Type 7. But finding new CRISPR systems is becoming increasingly difficult.
0: It's like finding a needle in a haystack, isn't it? Co-author Eugene Kunin says that type 7 and any other unidentified types must be extremely rare in nature.
1: Indeed, Diego. But why are certain types of CRISPR system rare? Is it because they're not generally useful to microorganisms, or are they specifically adapted to...
0: An organism living in a specific environment. That's a great question, Charlotte. Christine Porcel, a microbiologist, suggests that it might be a bit of both.
1: The FLS Clust algorithm itself is a major advance. It will allow researchers to look for other types of protein across species.
0: Indeed, it's a real treasure trove for biochemists. The next step is to work out the mechanisms through which these enzymes and systems work and how they could be adapted for biological engineering.
1: True, Diego, some CRISPR proteins might not be useful for engineering as they randomly chop up DNA, but their precision in detecting DNA or RNA sequences might make them good diagnostic or research tools.
0: It's too soon to say whether type 7 CRISPR systems or any of the other genes identified by Flesh Clust will be helpful for genetic engineering, but they have some properties that could be useful, such as type them's few genes that could easily fit in a viral vector and be delivered into cells. From the microscopic world of gene editing, we now turn our attention to a global issue that's larger than life. As we grapple with the challenges posed by our own genetic engineering, our planet faces another pressing concern, invasive alien species threatening ecosystems worldwide. Let's dive into this critical topic as the G7 nations take a bold stand against this ecological menace. So Charlotte, the G7 nations are taking a stand against invasive alien species that are threatening ecosystems globally. Quite a development, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, Diego. It's a significant move, especially given the increasing risk of these species entering various regions due to globalization. And it's not just a couple of species we're talking about here, but over 3,500.
0: That's a staggering number, Charlotte. And these species, like fire ants found at Japanese ports, contribute to the loss of ecosystems. It's a global issue that needs urgent attention.
1: And it seems the G7 is stepping up to the plate. They're planning to create a database to share information on these invasive species, strengthen research, and even involve the private sector in preventing their spread. Quite comprehensive, wouldn't you say?
0: Definitely, Charlotte. It's also encouraging to see international cooperation on this issue. The G7 nations hope that this will strengthen measures globally. It's a united front against a common enemy.
1: Indeed, Diego. And let's not forget the ambitious goal set at the United Nations Biodiversity Conference last year. A 50% reduction in the entry and entrenchment of invasive alien species by 2030. That's a tall order.
0: But one that's absolutely necessary, Charlotte. The world needs to work together on this. And it's great to see Japan, as the G7 chair, taking the first step towards cooperation. It's a long road ahead, but every journey begins with a single step.
1: Well said, Diego. And as Keichi Nakazawa from the Environment Ministry pointed out, it's a great achievement for Japan. It's a testament to the power of international cooperation in tackling global environmental challenges.